that, yeah, is there an eye there? Dressed in his righteousness Good morning. We'll be reading the Word of God this morning, starting in chapter 12 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with the household with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs, and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some, have left, some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another on the seventh day. Do no work on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. 
With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Well done, Megan. Thank you. Well, welcome. It's lovely to have you with us. If, um, if I haven't met you, I'm Grant, and I'd love to meet you afterwards over a cup of coffee, uh, and we're glad that you could be with us this morning. We are in sort of approaching the end of a series. Um, what's the series called? God, <laughs> just forgotten. God of Renown, thank you. That's not a good start, is it? Um, and uh, we've been working our way through the Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus. The plan is to um, spend another couple of weeks in it, and then next term, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, which comes in chapter 20 of Exodus. And so uh, the first um, term has been in preparation for us to hear the Ten Commandments. We'll do them much slower than what we're doing the book of Exodus. We'll slow right down to one commandment per week for next term and see how that applies to us today. But today we come to the actual Exodus. It rates, it must rate, mustn't it, as one of the great the all-time great miracles. Hard to think of anything bigger or better than the Exodus. It must have been a remarkable sight. It is a wonder. It's rightly called a wonder in the Bible, an impressive miracle. And we must recognize the wonder of the biblical miracles. The Bible tells us that God has done things in the history of the world that is not like anything that has happened today. You can't water down what happened in the Bible to the things that are happening today. Consider the magnitude of the Exodus. Somebody worked out the logistics, and it goes something like this. Chapter 12, verse 37 says that there were 600,000 men. Uh, so probably we were in the region of two to three million people, if you include the women and the children. They had to get across the Red Sea at night. If they went on a narrow path, double file, the line would have been 12,000 kilometers long and it would have required 35 days and nights to go through. And so the space in the Red Sea had to actually be five kilometers wide 
so that they could walk 5,000 abreast in, in order to get over in one night. Each time they camped at the end of the day, a campground of the equivalent of three and a half million football fields would have been needed. Moses would have had to find uh, 1,500 tons of food each day, 4,000 tons of firewood each day, and 40 million liters of water each day. I don't know. I haven't fact-checked any of that. The, the football thing didn't sound right to me. Maybe it was 35,000 footballs rather than 3.5 million. I don't know. But it is an astonishing thing that happened in history, is it not? That's the point. I want us to see this morning a few things from this passage. First of all, I want you to understand that Israel needs two rescues. This is the 10th plague, and it is the worst of the plagues. It's absolutely devastating. Can you imagine the horror of losing your firstborn son? It might be that you have had that experience. I've not had that experience. It's unspeakable to think about it if you've gone through it. I remember sitting with a man in a previous ministry who had lost his firstborn son. He was 19 years old and was killed in a car crash. And I was dealing with this man 50 years later. He was in his 70s. And he just had never, ever gotten over the tragic loss of his son. He would still visit the grave with his wife. He would still celebrate the anniversary of the death. He had never, ever, his life had been changed forever as a result of that. It is a dreadful thing to have lost a child. This plague follows the familiar pattern that we've already seen in the first nine plagues of promise and fulfillment. God promises the plague, and then it happens. That has happened nine times. The promise of this final plague is what chapter 11 is all about, which we didn't read this morning. And then if you jump to chapter 12 and verse 29, just have a look at this editorial summary statement. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. It happened. It was fulfilled. Promised, chapter 11. Fulfilled, chapter 12 and verse 29. God promises and it happens. Um, look at verse 30. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Can you, in your imagination, can you insert yourself into that scenario? It really is unthinkable, is it not? We used to live in a, in a housing complex where the houses were close enough together to hear certain skirmishes that took place. And the worst that we ever experienced was one night there was, we were awoken by very loud screaming and wailing due to a domestic uh, issue that had taken place where a wife and her sister had stabbed her husband. Not fatally, I'm glad to tell you, but six or eight times this man had been stabbed um, and police were arriving and ambulance were arriving and neighbors were gathering, a loud wailing was heard. It was a very distressing thing to experience as a neighbor. Can you imagine being in Egypt and after midnight hearing the screaming, this panic, this wailing? I doubt you would have gone back to sleep after that. 
But it's, it's not only is it similar, promise and fulfillment, but it's also different for two reasons. Firstly, like, unlike the ninth plague, or the first nine plagues, this plague is to be remembered in very great detail. And so much of what Megan read for us, verses 14 to 20 this morning, is really all about remembering this tenth plague. That is unique out of all of the plagues. We know, of course, from the New Testament that God is establishing in this plague a pattern, a template that will give New Testament believers the furniture with which to understand the death of Jesus. That's the reason why it must be remembered in so much detail. And so we get three chunks of instructions about remembering. Chapter 12, verse 14 and following. Chapter 12, verse 43 and following. Chapter 13, verse 3 and following. This must be remembered, and it must be remembered specifically like this. But it's unique for a second reason, because for the first time, the Israelites have to do something in order to remain safe. That hasn't happened the first nine plagues. It just happened, didn't it, that God sent the plagues against Egypt and not against Israel. The Israelites lived in a concentration camp in a place called Goshen, and that place was plague-free right throughout the first nine plagues. But it's the first plague where the Israelites have to do something in order to remain safe. They've got to trust the blood. God's judgment is coming against all of the gods of Egypt, all of the idolatry of Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 12, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. And so the whole of Egypt is about to be blanketed in the judgment of Yahweh. And so those who are there have to do something in order to escape the judgment. They've got to trust the blood. I want you to see that Israel need to be rescued from two dangers. Israel need to be saved from Pharaoh. That is really what the first nine plagues have been about. Let's remember that Pharaoh is a baby-murdering, slave-keeping, genocidal megalomaniac. And so, therefore, the plague, this tenth plague, is a proportionate response of judgment. For in chapter 1, remember, Pharaoh massacred the Jewish babies. And so this plague is in like, if you like, against Pharaoh. He is a dictator of 20th century proportions. They do need rescue from slavery. But what the 10th plague shows is that they also need rescue from God and from his judgment. This time, safety comes not because you are an Israelite. That was the first nine plagues. But because you have obeyed God's rescue plan and are trusting the blood. That's different. It's unique. I think that's why we have verse 38 in chapter 12, which says, Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. It wasn't only Israelites who left Egypt. There were others as well. 
Perhaps there were non-Israelites who were friends with Israel. We're not told. We're just told that in amongst the Israelites, there were non-Israelites that also engaged in the Exodus. Perhaps they also heard the news and trusted the blood and put it on the doorframe. How do you escape the judgment of God? Where do you run to when God is angry? You know, humanity instinctively knows that God is displeased with them. God is unsafe. Something needs to happen in order for God to become safe. We know that we can't draw near to God without some kind of sacrifice. In man-made religion, a god or gods always need to be appeased with some kind of sacrifice. It's called propitiation. Propitiation needs to happen in order for a god to be safe. A sacrifice needs to happen before God is safe. And so in pagan religion, there's always a sacrifice of some kind in order to appease a god who is not safe and in front of whom we are not acceptable. And so as a result of that, there are many who have looked at uh, this Passover, they've looked at the death of Jesus, which is called a propitiation in the New Testament, and said, well, how barbaric that is. Isn't our God better than the pagan gods? Why does mankind have to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh? Surely he is better and bigger than the pagan gods who need to be appeased by sacrifice. So what is the difference between the pagan religions and what is required here, the sacrifice of a lamb, the shedding of blood? The difference is, and here's my second point this morning, is that God makes the provision of the sacrifice. That's a very profound difference. In man-made religion, it's man that comes up with the sacrifices to appease an angry God. But with the true and living God, God is the one who provides the sacrifice. God requires a sacrifice, and God provides a sacrifice. That's the difference, and that is a profound difference. God makes a way for his judgment to be survived. He requires a sacrifice, and he provides it. That is unique in all the world. Look at chapter 12 and verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's the sacrifice that is required that God provides. An amazing detail is given, as you heard when Megan read for us this morning. It's as if the whole story slows down as we go through the detail. A lamb is to be chosen by each family. If the family is small, they can share it with their neighbors. If the family is large, they can use more than one lamb. There is to be enough meat for everyone. The lamb is to be cooked and eaten with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast, for there isn't enough time to wait for the bread to rise. They are to eat quickly and all the time in readiness to leave Egypt. Verse 11 this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Some of the lamb's blood is to be taken and daubed over the doorframe of each house. 
the blood is a sign in the first place to the Israelites. Chapter 12 and verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you. They have substituted a lamb for a life. The lamb has taken their place. But do you know the blood is also a sign for the Lord? Chapter 12 and verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The blood is not only something for the Israelites to see and to trust, the blood is also something for the Lord to see. It shows this household has done what I've told them to do. They've killed the lamb. The lamb has taken the place of the firstborn son, and I will pass over your house, for you are trusting the blood. And what the Lord said would happen does indeed happen in every detail. Look at verse 28 again. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. Imagine what it must have been like on that night. Imagine that you were the firstborn in the home. It's 10 o'clock. Dad, have you done the blood yet? Don't worry, son, we've got, we've got some time. Let's carry on playing Settlers of Catan. 10.30. Dad, isn't it time yet? Now, don't worry, my boy, we've got uh, some time still. 11 o'clock. Can you imagine the tension in the Israelite homes? It must have been a hard thing for them to trust the blood, don't you think? And holding their breath, hardly able to breathe at, as midnight struck to see what would happen, you had to trust the blood. But of course, by trusting the blood, you're actually trusting God. For God had provided a way. They were resting into the word of God. One Christian commentator said, the blood of creation is spilled so that the Israelites' blood might be spared. Third point, we must remember. So important is the story of how God rescues that mere words about the story are not enough. The story needs to be dramatized and reenacted over and over again, year in and year out, so that it is remembered and passed on and never forgotten. And the Jews have been doing it for three and a half thousand years. They've been obeying Exodus chapter 12. God wants this day to be remembered. Chapter 12 and verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. Chapter 12 and verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. Chapter 13 and verse 3. Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day you came out of Egypt. Chapter 13 verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Remembering this day is vitally important for the nation of Israel. For it is the day that shows them most clearly that their God is a God who rescues. 
Israel needs the mill to remember. Remember the substitute sacrifice. Remember the freedom from slavery in Egypt. Remember that the Lord is God. Remember that he is full of mercy. An annual national reminder that God is a God of judgment and that God is a God who saves. Remembering is key to strengthening our faith. It's why we need to keep hearing the gospel. It's why we need to keep having communion, as we are going to have in a few moments. Communion is really the gospel in 3D for us. As we drink the juice and eat the bread, we remember the shed blood of Jesus, the real Passover lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. And so the story is passed down, and each generation will understand how Yahweh spared Israel and judged Egypt. During the night, after midnight, chapter 12 and verse 31, Moses and Aaron are summoned to the palace. Look at what it says. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The king's order is clear. Israel will leave as a victorious nation. Remember, they were the slaves, peasants. But look at what verse 36 says. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. They gave them what they asked for, gold and jewelry, so they plundered the Egyptians. Here is a victorious nation, the nation of Israel. Of course, they did none of the fighting, did they? It was the Lord who fought and gave them victory. Here is expropriation without compensation. We can hardly imagine it. Verse 37, 600,000 men plus women and children, more than 2 million people join this mass Exodus, droves of animals go with them, and verse 50 is the summary. All the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. What the Lord promised back in chapter 3 has finally happened. What a night to remember. And of course, the meaning of the Passover is bigger than the Exodus and bigger than the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us that it was written for us so that we can understand Jesus. Listen to these words from the Apostle uh, Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the festival. I don't know if you know this, but it is striking that at the the, at the, at that Jesus' death at the ninth hour was precisely the time that the Jews killed the substitute lamb on the Passover weekend. And so Jesus is obviously identified with the fulfillment of the Passover. And he himself understood his own death in those terms. Look at Luke 22, verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
The fact that it happened at the Passover meal is Jesus explicitly linking his own death to the Passover lamb. That is, the Passover is a signpost to Jesus. In his great mercy, God has found a way to save us from God. Jesus dies in our place. God requires a sacrifice. God provides a sacrifice. God is the sacrifice. That's what the New Testament adds to the Passover for us. The Passover showed us that God required a sacrifice. The lamb was God providing the sacrifice, but Jesus is God the sacrifice himself. That is the fulfillment of the Passover. Like the sacrificial lamb of Exodus 12, this substitute, death, he's shed blood. It must be trusted for us to be saved. And do you know that our salvation is also a double-barreled salvation? We need to be saved from God and his righteous anger against sin. But we also need to be saved from bondage. Just like the Israelites were saved from Pharaoh, we are saved from the bondage of sin, from slavery to sin. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, all who sin are slaves. Slaves to sin. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Isn't that wonderful news? That not only has God rescued us from himself and his righteous anger, but God has rescued us from sin and its consequences, which is death, eternal death, and spiritual bondage to sin. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, Let's eat and drink now together to remember that great event in history. I'm going to ask uh, the council members if they'll come up and help distribute the bread and the grape juice. While we have it distributed, the musicians are going to lead us in a song which we will sit, we'll remain seated for and sing together. And I'll ask you to retain the grape juice and the bread so that we can eat and drink together as a sign of our unity in Christ. Savior say, I stray. 